Today's episode of This Week I Learned is brought to you by the Lincoln MKZ Hybrid with a fully retractable panoramic roof for more sky than any luxury sedan. Hello and welcome to This Week I Learned, your audio guide to the most surprising discoveries and fascinating studies of the week. I'm your host, Lauren Hansen. This week I learned that salmon sex moves mountains. Salmon hatch in freshwater, but their lives are lived out in the oceans. Then they'll return to the freshwater rivers from whence they came and spawn. Now, spawning is a really active process. Female salmon turn on their sides and flap their tails to build nests that will hold their eggs. With the eggs safely secured, the males come over and do their fertilizing part. And then, yada, 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 four to six weeks later, salmon fry emerge from their gravelly nest. And in a new study out of Indiana University, researchers discovered that it's the nest building that can actually change the height and shape of mountains and valleys, and even entire landscapes. You see, when those ladies build a nest, they are accumulating lots of sediment all around them. And this exposes the riverbed, which causes more erosion, not only around the nest they're building, but also downstream. This kind of erosion wears down mountains over long periods of time. And yes, this is the caveat. It's not like salmon get it on and then the earth moves immediately. It's more like salmon spawning affects mountain landscapes over the course of hundreds of thousands or even millions of years. So yes, it takes a while, but the effect salmon have on the shape of mountains is not insignificant. Through extensive data and mathematical formulations, researchers calculated that a landscape where salmon spawn could be up to 30% lower than a similar landscape that had no salmon at all. And some salmon species are greater movers and shakers than others. The Chinook salmon, for example, spawn in a wider range of grain sizes than other species like pink salmon. And this means that they can disrupt longer stretches of water and have a greater impact on erosion. Now, what's really interesting is that it's really only because of mountains that we have all these different species of salmon in the first place. Mountains are built by tectonic processes that lift rocks higher and higher. And scientists believe that in the Pacific Northwest specifically, this mountain building process created the very environment the ancient salmon ancestor needed to evolve into all these distinct species. The salmon repay the mountains by wearing them down over time. So just your average parent-child relationship This week I learned that daydreaming may be a sign of intelligence. A wandering mind gets a bad rap. It implies an inability to focus on the task at hand. But a new study from Georgia Tech reveals evidence of the opposite. A wandering mind may be a sign of a highly efficient brain. This study was a layered one. 
First, researchers measured the brain patterns of more than 100 volunteers while they lay in an MRI machine. The participants were instructed to focus on a particular spot for five minutes. The point of this exercise was to identify which parts of the brain work together during an awake resting state, essentially measuring the efficiency of the brain's inner workings. So once they figured that out, they had the volunteers take a test that measured their intellectual and creative abilities. They also had the group fill out a questionnaire rating how much their mind wandered in daily life. And researchers found that the people who reported more frequent daydreaming scored higher on intellectual and creative abilities. Those same daydreamers also had more efficient brain systems. Having a highly efficient brain means that you have more capacity to think. And when you have more capacity to think, your mind may wander when performing easy tasks. So the next time you find yourself checking out, it may just be that you're a secret genius. This week I learned that you were probably born with that crippling fear of spiders. It's not something you learn from personal experience or even your surrounding culture. That fear is actually an evolutionary trait left over from when our ancestors needed to stay away from things like spiders and snakes to survive in the wild. Researchers from Germany, Vienna, and Switzerland were trying to get to the bottom of an ongoing debate. Is arachnophobia something embedded into our species or learned? To do this properly, researchers needed babies. Babies are the perfect test subjects for this because their emotional responses haven't yet been corrupted by their families, friends, fairy tales, or movies. So researchers split their little infant subjects into two groups. One group of babies looked at images of spiders and images of flowers. The spiders and flowers were purposely about the same size and about the same color. The other group of babies looked at images of snakes and fish, and again the animals here were the same size and about the same color schemes. While the babies panned through the images, an infrared eye tracker measured their pupil dilation. Oh, and all babies, by the way, were being held by their parents during this whole process, so safe and sound. So when your pupils dilate, it's an indication of increased levels of the chemical noradrenaline in the brain. Noradrenaline is the adrenaline hormone that tells our bodies to fight or get out of dodge. And what researchers found was that spiders cause the most pupil dilation by far, an average of 0.14 millimeters, whereas the flowers in that same group elicited a dilation of just 0.03 millimeters. In the other group, snakes cause more pupil dilation than the fish, but the difference there wasn't nearly as significant as it was with spiders. And this could just be because the images were both of animals. Researchers see this as proof that we are born with a fear of the creepy, crawly things that could harm us. Sure, these days we're rarely in the presence of a poisonous spider or snake, but the initial fear and disgust we feel when encountering, you know, the likes of a harmless daddy longleg may just be a hangover survival instinct that evolved through countless generations of our ancestors a long, long time ago. This week I learned that having a broken heart is an actual medical condition. The temporary heart condition is called Takasubo cardiomyopathy, 
or stress cardiomyopathy, though we might refer to it as broken-hearted syndrome. It was first diagnosed in Japan in 1990. The name, Takasubo, means octopus trap, which is a reference to what the heart muscle looks like when afflicted. What happens is the heart muscle becomes suddenly weakened. The left ventricle, the heart's main pumping chamber, changes shape. Instead of looking like an oval sac connected to a tube, the chamber forms a bulge with a narrow passage, and this restricts the pumping. This new shape kind of looks like a teapot, which is what the Japanese would traditionally use to capture an octopus. Hence, octopus trap. The main symptoms are chest pain and shortness of breath, which is often why it's confused, at least at first, with a heart attack. And it can be triggered by severe physical or emotional stress, particularly the loss of a loved one. But the actual cause of the condition isn't known. Doctors believe it might be associated with a surge of hormones, like adrenaline. And this sort of stuns the heart muscle, causing the changes in the cells and the ventricular shape. According to the New England Journal of Medicine, a 61-year-old Texas woman was recently diagnosed with Takotsubo cardiomyopathy. She woke up one morning with severe chest pains, and when she went to the emergency room, they found no evidence of blockage in her coronary arteries, which ruled out a heart attack. When the doctors performed an echocardiography, they found that telltale budge in the heart. Combined with the information they got from the woman, that she had recently been through a series of stressful situations that culminated in the death of her beloved Yorkshire Terrier, doctors were able to diagnose her with Takotsubo cardiomyopathy. She was prescribed an enzyme inhibitor, which would relax the blood vessels and beta blockers that would ease her emotional stress. And she did appear to make a full recovery. Interestingly, researchers have found that Takotsubo cardiomyopathy is most common in postmenopausal women. But let's be honest, a broken heart following the loss of a pet? That's universal. And that does it for this episode of This Week I Learned. Look out for new episodes every Friday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And if you'd like to read more about any of the facts I've mentioned, you can head on over to theweek.com slash podcasts, where you'll also find our 7-Minute Opinions and 7-Minute Explainer series. And if you've come across any scientific tidbits, fascinating studies, or historical revelations that you'd like to share, you can email me at podcasts at theweek.com. Both plural and singular will get you there. And until next week, I'm Lauren Hansen, and thank you so much for listening. 